0: Welcome to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education, hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Hello and welcome to Justice For All the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. I am your host, President Ali Malekzadeh. Once again this week, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Margaret Rung and Professor Andrew Trees, who are co-chairs of the Programming Committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from September 14th to 17th. In this week's episode, the struggle continues, Eleanor Roosevelt, Roosevelt University, and the fight for social justice. Andy will be interviewing Margie about Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, two towering figures in American history who are near and dear to the hearts of all Roosevelt students, faculty, and staff. As you already know from a past podcast, Margie is a professor of history, the director of the history program, and also heads the Center for New Deal Studies at Roosevelt University. And she is our resident expert for all things Roosevelt. Andy will be talking with Margie about Eleanor and Franklin and relating these two figures to this year's conference theme Eleanor Roosevelt's American Dream. I hope you enjoyed our conversation.
1: This is Professor Andrew Trees of Roosevelt University talking today to my co chair of the program committee, Professor Margaret Rung, who is a longtime faculty member at Roosevelt University and also the head of the Center of UDL Studies and also the resident expert on all things Roosevelt. So uh, we're very excited to be able to hear her uh, thoughts on the conference today. And I thought we'd kick it off with a question about the theme of the conference. This year, it's Eleanor Roosevelt's American Dream. It's also the 75th anniversary of the founding of Roosevelt University. And I know we've talked a little bit about this uh, already, but I'm curious, Margie, if you could talk to us a little bit about how some of the panels reflect different aspects of Eleanor Roosevelt and her life and her vision.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks for having me. When I was thinking about the theme of the conference for this year, I was coming at it from a couple of different angles. One is just as a political historian interested in in politics and civic life. Two, of course, we were coming up on the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment, giving most women, not all women, the right to vote. And we were, of course, about to launch on the 75th anniversary of the university. So it seemed like a perfect time to kind of reflect on the person that I felt most represented the synergy of those anniversaries, and that was Eleanor Roosevelt, who of course was intimately involved with the founding of the university as sitting on the board of advisors, bringing in friends of hers to that board and then visiting the university a number of times um, in the 1950s. So I was thinking about her life, and I, I was contemplating what would be a way of, of examining these issues that would touch on various themes that that were important in her biography. So one of them was, of course, political leadership, something she thought about a lot. She was obviously a leader herself. She was Married to a political leader. So it was sort of in her blood, and she she wrote a lot about politics and leadership. And so the first panel, of course, is 21st century New Deal political leadership. And I wanted to see sort of what is the what's the 21st century version of the New Deal and of progressive politics. And that led me to really be thinking about places in the United States where we are seeing some important incubation of progressive politics in the South being one of those spots. So our first panel is going to focus on a a progressive leader coming out of Jackson, Mississippi, Mayor Lumbumba, and he's going to talk to us about his vision for that city and and generally speaking about um, progressive politics. I also was, of course, focused on the 19th Amendment. And Eleanor was just becoming politically active when the amendment passed. And the 1920s is when she really came into her own politically. And she was very involved with the League of Women Voters. And then she got involved in the Democratic Party in New York State. And she became really a politician in her own right during that decade. So I thought, well, that's that's a perfect place to, to think about the 19th Amendment and what it meant. But she also, as her, her political career and her political education progressed, she realized that there were significant racial injustices. And and one of those that we, of course, know is that Black women did not have access to the franchise, nor did Black men. So I I thought, well, that's this again, this is a good moment to reflect on the 19th Amendment and where Black women fit into the fight for it. And then in the aftermath of its passage. She also, many recent biographers have talked about her sexuality and her her identity. And so I thought, again, let's talk about LGBTQ plus rights in the 21st century, where that struggle is going. She never identified herself as a lesbian. She did not actively promote gay and lesbian rights in the 1930s or 40s. So I don't see her as somebody who was on the forefront of that, but I think through her own personal journey, it's certainly something she encountered and thought about. And I think it's really informed her views about equality. And then, of course, we're going to have a, a panel on racial justice with, uh, featuring some of our students, which connects to her broad commitment to young people and to education and to racial justice. So those are just some of the ways that I see Eleanor Roosevelt's ideals coming through in these panels. It's not so much to reflect on her and her life. It's really to think about how the values and principles that she espoused are now being put into practice and and amplified in the 21st century.
1: Hmm. Fantastic. I want to dive in a little more on some of those themes you raised. Uh, But before we do, I'm just curious. So since you are so deeply steeped in the Roosevelt's, what can you tell us about either Eleanor or Franklin that might surprise people or that they wouldn't know about them? I think they tend to be in that pantheon of American figures who are often, we assume we know more about them than we actually do sometimes.
2: Yes. I mean, I think that the more you read about them and, and, you know, if you look at their personal correspondence, you you come to appreciate one, how playful they were. And I think that FDR's personality, for example, comes through in his sort of, joyful letters to various friends and family members. And I think you, you begin to get a sense of people who just really enjoyed being with other people. And community was really central to who they were. Hmm. So there were picnics, constantly picnics at Val Kill, which is where uh, Eleanor's House was, or there was a picnic at Top Cottage in which it's a pretty, it's not a a totally well-known story, but it isn't also one that's deeply buried. But there's a story in which the king and queen of England were visiting and they decided to have a hot dog lunch for them at Top Cottage, which was a cottage that Roosevelt had built in the late 1930s that he, he was going to retire to. And it sits up on a little knoll not too far from Springwood where he lived. And so there was this road that went through the woods, and kind of. I don't road is maybe just a that's a misnaming of it. It's just a path (laughs) goes through the woods. And he offered to drive the queen to the picnic. And he loved to drive. And as many people know, he had his own car built with hand controls. And so he gets in the car (laughs) with the queen, and he loves to drive fast. So he's driving like a bat out of you know hell up this mountainous little routeless road and she is sitting there, you know, sort of not saying anything and they get to the top and they have this wonderful picnic and then it's time to go back. And she basically says to the secret service, I'm not getting in the car with (laughs) you. You need to drive me back. And I think that, you know, again, it sort of represents his genre de vivre. And it was very important to him to be in that kind of a position because he couldn't walk at that point. So this was sort of his, his sense of physical freedom I think the other story that I just will mention and because a lot of people talk about their marriage and, you know, that they were s- sort of estranged romantically. And, and there's, been, you know, there's just lots of people sort of talking and judging and trying to dissect their personal lives. And I, I mean, I have opinions about all of that. I do think their marriage was strong and I think they cared very deeply about one another. And Eleanor's younger brother, Hall died of alcoholism, which was the same affliction that her father died of. So that was a very difficult moment for her. And they were in the White House and FDR and ER were sitting on the couch with some family members and she had just gotten word of his death. And, you know, she was distraught and FDR took her head in his lap and he just sort of, you know, comforted her. And when I heard that story, I thought that's that to me is very telling. These are two people who were bonded for many years. They went through many trials. If you think about his polio, then they did have some marital difficulties, all of that. They really loved one another and respected one another. And I, I felt like that that moment again showed his empathy and their connection to one another. I mean, there are many other Moments like that, but those two struck me.
1: I <laughs> love uh-huh. in the first story. You know, I think we all worry about the problem of what do you serve the king and queen when they're coming to lunch. It's something we all face, and they gave the very American answer of hot dogs. You know, which I think well, that's that's, uh,
2: yeah, exactly, awesome. and that's part of what I mean. I mean, there was these were two people who are very cultured. They belonged to the upper crust, but they were extremely down to earth. And you know, the the house was it was a mansion, but it was open you know it was people came to the lawn the night that roosevelt was elected and you know there are thousands of people standing on the lawn and he comes out onto the porch to address them (laughs) and i think that just again sort of underscores their connection their personal connection to the people and i would say the white house had a similar vibe where there were people coming and going they had aides living with them family you know children living with them grandchildren so it was more than just a, a sort of staid place of, of work and uh, for the president. It was a home. And I think that definitely, that sort of atmosphere was definitely picked up by regular people. And that's why they wrote to them all the time. They felt like they were writing to friends or, or to family members. And I love the way some of the letters are addressed. You know, sometimes it's your Royal Highness. Sometimes it's a madam. <laughs> Mrs. President, (laughs) so that gives you some sense of mother of the you know mother of the nation, father of the nation. Gives you some sense of how people viewed the president and first lady.
1: Well, you know that actually is my next question because I think uh, even though many decades removed from their lives, they are still these incredibly inspirational figures. And so I wonder if you have any examples of a quote or something like that that they some some sort of writing from them that shows their ability to uh, speak to the nation in a way that I think brought about great things.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways that came through, I mentioned Eleanor's commitment to young people. I mean, interestingly, she, she did not go to college, but that didn't mean she wasn't educated. And she talks a lot about her transformative years at Allenswood, which was a boarding school in England. She was sent to as a teenager and it was run by a very progressive woman, Madame Suvestre and Eleanor just blossomed there I mean this she she had her whole worldview opened up and she became more confident she you know again sort of embraced all of these subjects that um, the classics that were taught to her and She, I think, learned how to be a leader at Allenswood. So she came back from that experience a different person. Hmm. And throughout her life, I think she saw learning as a lifelong pursuit. She never stopped reading. She never stopped learning. And so when the Depression hit and, and she and Franklin moved into the White House, She was deeply committed to making sure that young people were not lost in this devastating economic situation. She was she constantly talked about the lost generation. And I think one of the things that she was most concerned about was, you know, sort of what was going to happen to public education. Teachers were foregoing their salaries during the Depression. Schools were feeding children and they were closed. So, you know, sort of that was a concern. And she saw the school closures, too, as just that's children losing opportunities for their future. And she believed firmly that public schools existed to socialize young people into democracy. Mm -hmm. And this was a place where children could begin to think for themselves as citizens. So as late as 1939, 10 years into the Depression, she wrote, quote, we are giving little thought to the development of great teachers. We think more about curtailing their salaries than we do about improving their qualifications. A really good teacher can never be sufficiently paid, and they do not develop on starvation wages. So there she's talking about a living wage. She's talking about the importance of education. You know who who deserves a decent salary, um, and as I, I she herself was a teacher. I think I mentioned that, and she taught at a school in New York City, Todd Hunter, and she taught there for several years while her husband was governor of New York. She commuted between Albany and New York City to teach. Um, she was down there every week, and she absolutely loved it. And she said this was the first time she had something of her own. Uh, And I think she really identified herself as an educator. So during the Depression, she was a strong advocate of the National Youth Administration, which was put into place in 1935. And she constantly kind of amplified these issues. She became a very strong advocate of the American Youth Congress and the American Student Union, two very progressive youth-based organizations, and they advocated for everything from planning and agriculture government support for farm workers, equal wages for equal work, worker education, and an end to discrimination based on race and poverty. And she she really was drawn to this group. She became very close to one of the ASU founders, Joseph Lash, uh, who was a lifelong confidant of hers she actually showed up at a hearing in congress they were called in to testify and she came into the hearing room and she just sat in the audience and then when it was over she invited the the young people to the white house for tea and they didn't agree on everything they were actually criticizing the national youth administration for not doing enough but she had this very candid open conversation with them and they they just Became huge supporters of hers and vice versa, so I I I'd say that's one place where we really see you know that kind of again inspiration from from Eleanor and vice versa Eleanor being inspired by others.
1: That's uh, fascinating, and I think you were mentioning you you told me earlier that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was actually the first president to organize his own library. So it seems like on that on his side there was also a fairly profound commitment to that kind of knowledge and education as a way to raise the nation.
2: Yeah, thanks for reminding me that. To me, that was really, again, a kind of remarkable accomplishment that he had the foresight to realize that his papers and his, you know, speeches and all of that would be of importance to historians and others in the future. So in the the late 1930s, he became the first president to establish his presidential library. But I, I want to emphasize here that he gave his home to the American people for that library. So he, he gave the property, Springwood, the home to the people. The library was built in, I think, 1939, uh, 1940. And he would go up frequently and work with his secretary on his papers um, and getting them ready for what would become the archives and the museum. I can't really emphasize enough, if anyone is ever in the area of Hyde Park, <laughs> you you should go to the FDR home and uh, library and museum. It's It's an incredibly enriching experience. They have an amazing visitor center. You can tour the home, and, of course, the museum um, has tremendous uh, exhibits, some permanent, you know, some put in for special occasions. You can, on certain days and times, you can go up to Top Cottage. You can also visit Valkill, which was Eleanor Roosevelt's homestead. And that's not too far away. Uh, you can take a, you can either drive over there or take a little van over it's, a, it's just a really inspiring place, and the museum is excellent. I've been there several times, and I still haven't seen everything. But when I go, I just feel really inspired and connected. And I did want to kind of just just read something that I got when I was there. So I was, I was looking at some exhibits. I actually took a picture of it, and then I transcribed it. So at the end, where it talks about his death, it has some examples of letters that people wrote to Eleanor. And there was one in particular that sort of stood out to me. And I just wanted to read it because I think it, it just emphasizes the way that people saw Roosevelt and the sort of meaning that he brought to their lives. So it's dated Thursday, April 12th, 1945. And it was written by a man and his, signed by him and his family from Philadelphia. Dear Mrs. Roosevelt, I am all confused. I don't know how to start or where to begin to write this letter. Words fail me. I am stunned beyond expression. Daddy, President Roosevelt is dead. That was my 10-year-old daughter, Emile, speaking. No, I said, impossible. That must be a mistake. No, no, I heard it over the radio, she assured me. But it was true. Yet I could not believe it. Nobody could believe it from the first moment. I felt as though I was frozen in my chair. I could hardly move. No, President Roosevelt did not die. He was crushed under the terrific weight of his multitudinous duties and responsibilities that have come with the terrible war that was forced upon us by our mortal enemies. No, I repeat, President Roosevelt is not dead. He is merely resting in peace and in tranquility where there are no tears, no worryments, no loss of sleep, no pain, no suffering, no injustice. He is away, but his great ideals and accomplishments remain with us and for us and for the generations yet unborn. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was more than the president of the United States. He was the greatest humanitarian that this suffering world has ever known. You have lost a devoted husband. America has lost a great president and the whole world has lost a friend. The poor, the oppressed, and the forgotten men, women, and children everywhere feel the loss in the sudden and tragic death of President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt understood the real meaning of justice. To him, justice meant freedom, liberty, opportunity to earn an honest living and to forge ahead, equality, love, sympathy, and understanding of humanity, rectitude, social harmony, helpfulness, everything that we actually need or ever will need in order to establish and maintain a lasting, enduring, permanent and a just peace everywhere and for everybody. Sincerely yours, Frank E. Hubert and family. Now, of course, the war was still going on when that was written. So he was thinking very hard about the meaning of the war, but I just, uh, I found that so incredibly moving, you know, this ordinary person would write this letter and explain so eloquently like what you know what roosevelt meant to the country so yeah i think that's part of the legacy was just that the roosevelt inspired people to be better to be better citizens and you know they had their failings they didn't always live up to their ideals and principles but i think they encouraged other people to do that
1: i think that's an incredible letter and gives me the idea that i think uh, roosevelt university is very fortunate in the intertwining of its history with the Roosevelt's that they, that's where we take our name and our idea of social justice. And so I'm curious, you've been teaching Roosevelt a long time, uh, thoughts perhaps about that intertwining, about the relationship of Roosevelt university to the Roosevelt's and their own vision and their own influence on the nation in things like education and the importance of uh, the the youth of tomorrow or in our case today. Uh, So uh, thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. So I've been teaching at Roosevelt. This will be my 26th year. And I came a year before our 50th anniversary. And and the 50th anniversary was also the year that we founded the Center for New Deal Studies. So I feel really fortunate in that I, ca- I came at this very auspicious time when there was a lot of focus on the Roosevelts and on the university. And so I learned very quickly about its history Um, You'll be hearing a little more about that, so I'm not going to steal Professor Weiner's thunder. But she was, you know, she was my mentor and she taught me a lot about the university. And I think this idea is that, you know, when President Sparling and the faculty and the students walked out of the Central YMCA College, and and first chose the name Jefferson and then Roosevelt died. They did that because they believed in equality and they believed in equality of opportunity. And I think it's important to note that they were willing to risk their livelihoods to put that into practice, to leave secure jobs and start a university. I, I just think that takes a tremendous amount of courage and commitment and when you read about some of those early faculty members, and I'm sure the students, you know, they, they believe so strongly in the mission that they were willing to, to forego some of the creature comforts of being perhaps a, a university professor or a student at a, a well-heeled institution. And I, I feel like that ambiance, that kind of ideal continues to inform what we do at Roosevelt. I truly believe that the best part about being part of this community is interacting with students and, of course, fellow faculty members here. I feel privileged to have taught so many inspiring students. I'm inspired by the obstacles that they overcome to uh, become recipients of a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. You know, we have students whose parents are immigrants who come to the country with virtually nothing. Some of them illiterate, and then their children are walking across the stage to receive a degree. And I think that's, you know, that's incredible that that happens. You know, students whose ancestors have lived in the United States since the colonial period but were brought here in chains, and now they too are receiving their bachelor's degrees or their master's degrees. And I, when I sit in a classroom with these students and we talk about the Roosevelts, because I, because I teach a course on them. Um, or we debate the atomic bomb, or we discuss corporate capitalism, whatever it is, I've learned something from them because of the experiences that they're bringing into the classroom. And I, I will say that when I came for my interview, you know, 26 plus years ago, I wanted to meet some of the students. And it, the semester had just started. It was January. And uh, I mostly we were teaching at night at that point. So I went to a night class, Professor uh, Christopher Reed, uh, who is now retired, one of his classes, and just chatted with the students, and I was just immediately struck by how genuine they were, how much they loved the university and appreciated it. They expressed tremendous gratitude towards the staff and the faculty. And then the other thing that struck me, Roosevelt is a diverse institution, but when we talk about diversity, we don't always talk about age. And one of the things the students emphasized to me was the importance of having different ages in the classroom and how that really brought out multiple perspectives for them. And I know that my first, you know, decade of teaching, as I said, a lot of it done at night, that was an important experience and theme um, in the classroom for me. And I think about all of the great things that my students are doing after they leave Roosevelt. You know, they become lawyers, business people, educators. They go to Ph.D. programs. And I think, wow, you know, like that's that's really the legacy that Eleanor Sparling and others wanted to leave. And I'm I'm really honored, you know, to have gotten to know so many fantastic students. Sometimes I'm, you know, obviously, like the job is not always easy and it's sometimes exhausting and I I get a little down or I, you know, I am tired. And I was talking to my dad one time about it and, you know, I was telling him about some of the things that our students had done. And he just said to me, you know, you just need to focus on that. Like you just need to keep doing it. He said, like, "Keep doing what you're doing." You know, like he just reminded me that's really where my energy needs to be put. But I did want to ask you in closing, since you've been teaching here for is it five years now? That's
1: about right. Uh huh.
2: Yeah. So you know, it's interesting because we bookend. So I've been here a little bit longer. You've just been here a smaller increment. But I just wondered what you what your impressions were um, as a faculty member, newish faculty member.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think I've been really struck since I've been here about this Roosevelt University and the students. There's a real identity there. And I think that commitment to social justice is embedded deeply in the university's DNA because of the founding, I would guess, in a way that is not true of other schools. I mean, I've taught a lot of different schools, and every school has a motto and a mission and values that they promote. And I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate them, but I, if, at Roosevelt, it feels much more part of their core identity where I, I really feel like in teaching the students, uh, they really are a special group. And there's a bit of a self-selection that goes on and the type of student that ends up here that really embraces that mission. And as with you, I, I find it very inspiring. I mean, I find that I really am in awe of my students at times and what they overcome to get a college education and their commitment to social justice in the sacrifices that they make, both at, to attend university, but also in protesting and trying to change things in the larger world. And, uh, and so I feel very lucky in that respect. So I, I, even though I have been here as long as you have, I, I do find it a very a special place to be a part of.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that the one, the one constant that I've seen, I, I mentioned earlier, is just that the students, they don't take a lot for granted, and they're very, they're very grateful. Um, and they're kind people. And that makes teaching them so much more stimulating and, and fulfilling. So, yeah, I agree with you completely there.
1: Well, I have to say, Professor Ron, thank you so much. It has been really fascinating to hear about the Roosevelt's and about their vision and about their relationship to the university. And so I appreciate the, uh, you taking the time to talk with all of us.
2: My pleasure. I'm just going to plug the conference and ask people to, if you're interested in these topics, to please join us on our array of panels. You can register on the website already, and we're going to have a whole week of fascinating discussions that I think will enlighten you so that you can carry the torch forward.
0: justice for all is produced by Roosevelt university and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for and justice for all is written and produced by Jesse case. Thanks for listening.